Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get on to my show. Howdy folks, welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. Today I have percussionist, national arts advocate, recording artist, an all-around super swell guy and fellow Angelino, Sidney Hobson. Sidney and I met uh, on the board of Orchestra Los Angeles. He's on our uh, executive board, and it's um, it's an organization that I co-founded with a friend of mine named Michael Powers, who'll be on uh, my show next week. And uh, wouldn't you know it, the pandemic struck just right around the time we were planning our gala performance. So. That got put on hold, and I thought, you know, this this uh, last year or so, I've dedicated my time to the podcast, and I thought, let's bring back the interview. So, this is my third or fourth interview now since we've been back, and I just I think Sydney's terrific. He's such a a smart, um, articulate. Um, what's another word for Sydney? Elegant um, human being, just a fine human being, and he's a heck of a percussionist. He's been on all sorts of recordings, movie soundtracks. He's constantly working. He's had a great uh, career chugging right along even through this pandemic, which really says a lot. So we talk about that. We talk about OLA. We talk about uh, the state of arts in the, in the country and how we're all handling the pandemic. I thought it was a really interesting interview. I hope you enjoy it. And here's Sydney. Welcome to the show, Sydney. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I know you from Orchestra Los Angeles. You're on our board, which is a group that we started a, a year ago or so, right before the pandemic, which shut down our gala performance. So that whole thing's been put on hold. And, and that's really as, as much as I know about you. So, um, you know, I don't do a lot of research on my guests. So I'm going to start by asking you about your background. Do, do you come from a musical family? How did this all come to be? I do. Uh, you know, I have two older brothers who all studied music. They started a couple years ahead of me, but uh, all of us learned piano. Uh, my oldest brother studied flute, my middle brother guitar. Um, my first instrument was the violin. Uh, it was a, a deeply troubling six months. It did not go well. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think for all parties involved, I think everyone would, would agree that, yeah, it just it did not go well. Uh, but my next instrument was piano, did that for a bit. And uh, it's funny, I just shared this, this story with a friend the other day, where uh, my mom, who had enrolled my brothers in what, uh, it's a school known as the Saturday Conservatory for Music, which Where's used that? to be based out of Cal State LA, but has been ah. at Lake Avenue Church now since the early 2000s, I'm gonna say 2002 or three. And uh, one day my mom grabbed me by the hand, I was about seven years old, and she walked me down to uh, the basement, which is where the percussion studio was. She walks me into the room, opens up the classroom, uh, introduces me to the person who would become my, my first percussion teacher, and says, and I quote, my son has too much energy, will you help me? <laughs> And the rest is history. That was how I got signed up for percussion lessons. And, uh, you know, luck of the draw, I ended up falling in love with it. And uh, she was right. I did have too much energy, but it all it all worked out in the end. So. That's terrific. Um, I'm sorry to harp on this, but your mic is a little hot now. If you could knock it down a notch. Yeah. Yeah, I know. This is a constant. It's a constant struggle on my end. And it's it's been a good. Uh, I mean, COVID has been a good. 
uh, training period for me with this stuff too, and I'm sure with everybody. So everybody well, actually, understands. Now that I've got this other mic, and I'm going to switch my sound setting. Hopefully, that will help control it a bit. Is that too oh, much? Yeah. No, it's too it's too hot. Yeah, but it sounds good if you just turn turn it down. Okay. A little How bit. about that? Yeah, good. Okay, great. Yeah. Hopefully, between the mic and the new settings. So no, it's okay. Norm normally, it's not so twitchy, but I. Uh, We'll, we'll, we'll make it work. I believe it. Yeah, is. yeah, 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 yeah. So, how old were you when you started? Uh, the reason I ask is that I've got a an eight year old son who's been studying, who's been practicing piano for about a year now. When did you start? I took my first piano lessons. Um, I want to say six and a half or so. Uh, it was a group piano class, though. So it actually kind of for us it worked out because uh, the the teacher I had at the time she she was such a taskmaster, you know. Uh, even though we were kids, I mean she she ran a tight ship. <laughs> and so, here, was it here in Los Angeles? In Los Angeles, yeah, at yeah. the Saturday Conservatory. Uh, so it, it it worked out well for me, and it worked out I think well for a lot of the kids who went through the program there. Um, but, uh, you know, there, some kids are just very mature and very ready to take on high detail tasks at a very young age. And so I think, uh, you know, if, if they're ready, they're ready. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if our son is ready, but we make him do it anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's something that I didn't have as a, as a child. Um, I wish that I wish that I'd been exposed to piano a little bit more. I mean, not to knock my parents in any way, you know, everybody does the best that they can. We had a piano in the house and my grandma used to play the piano and I, I used to be kind of mesmerized by it. And then I, I didn't study music until I was in my 20s. So I feel like I, yeah. I really had to catch up. So you were fortunate that way. Um, so you grew up in L.A. And I'm sorry, do you do you remember the name of the teacher, the piano teacher, by any chance? Um, my my first year was uh, Denise Kwan. I and I had her for a number of years and she taught all three or all three of us, uh, my brothers and I. And she, so she was probably one of your earliest influences. Yeah. I mean, as somebody that you looked definitely. up to back then. Yeah. yeah and then definitely. how about percussion? After your mom took you to the percussion basement, what happened from that point on? Did you have an affinity for rhythm and for drums and percussion back then? You know, I, I wouldn't say that I did, actually. You know, my, my teacher, Melvin Lee, uh, or Mel, uh, we everyone called him. Um, you know, he was, and it is, it's just, you know, one of the most chill humans period. I mean, because, you know, it takes it takes a particularly patient person, <laughs> I think, sure. to want to teach like young child percussionists. You know, it's 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 a very different energy than young cellists, you know, and young <laughs> violinists, you know, um, it's, it's a very different just, you know, aural experience to, sure. to be in the room, whether or not you're the kids are playing drums or practice pads. I mean, it, it takes a special kind of just emotional integrity you know, to yes. be really ready and, and also you know a lot of like you know you have to have control of the classroom you got to know what you're doing what you're doing you know and you know for me i i was a i was just always immersed in sounds and from a very early age my my mom had very eclectic musical tastes um listened to everything my dad just listened to smooth jazz for the most part i mean he was a like you know 94.7 the wave just sure. one and done one station for every mood you know kind of guy <laughs> um my mom she she was kind of infamous for these mixtapes that were just just all over the place and and uh it was called peanut butter and sriracha sandwiches you know it'd be like <laughs> one one track would be like 
you know, uh, Witten Marcellus plays Hummel, and the next one would be like the early Carlos Santana album, and then it'd be some, you know, Barbara Streisand studio take, and then some polka she had heard, you know, that she thought was kind of funny on the radio, and they would just all be on these mixed cassette tapes, and you never knew what was going to come next, right? Sure. And so for me, music was this very just sort of you know, free form experience at home, you know, the idea of genres and sort of specialties and industrial focuses. Uh, that was a foreign concept to me that I learned in college. Um, I knew when I set out to make music that like making music meant learning jazz, learning classical. It, it wasn't even so much learning different styles. It was just like, oh yeah, I want to learn that song and I want to play like that person and I want to recreate that feeling and, and know that sort of culture, you know, and, sure. you know, if I'm going to learn you know, you know, Mashkenada, I've got to learn some Portuguese now. So the idea of sort of learning, you know, languages and music, it, it all just kind of coincided with trying to understand the stuff my mom was putting on the radio. You know, Sure, sure. We, I mean, our, our kids have the same experience here. We, we listen to everything from, you know, Prokofiev to Rex Orange County around here. And, and yeah. my, you know, my son just loves all of it. He's got a guitar teacher and he's getting into some Black Sabbath and stuff like that, too. And we've got a drum set downstairs. So I understand the patience that it takes to be a parent <laughs> with a set of drums in the house. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as far as as far as percussionists, do you have any uh, I mean, I'll just there's no elegant. Well, there is an elegant way, but I don't like speaking elegantly necessarily. Who are your fam favorite percussionists and drummers? Who are your oh. big influences now as an adult? To, to this day, it's still hard to decide, you know, because I, I like different players, like, you know, for the same reasons that I like different instruments and for very different reasons, sure. you know, um, you know, an orchestral playing, uh, you know, you've got Tibbetts like Wieland Weissel, you know, in Berlin, in, in Germany, you've got, you know, one of my teachers in graduate school, Joe Pereira, who's a timpanist CLA Phil, um, was a big musical influence for me, um, you know, you know, you just kind of go down the line, the Tito Puentes, the, you know, sure. as, you know, one, one artist who I met during grad school who really made a big mark on me, uh, Dizu Kleikis, who is a South African percussionist, singer, songwriter, just incredible artist, huh. um, left such a mark on me when he and a few artists from South Africa on tour performed at USC. And the director of the education program at the time, uh, Sheila Woodward, had invited a few of the percussion students to join them in this concert. And so we kind of lived with these guys for a couple of days and, you know, we, we learned from them. And we, it, was, it was sort of, you know, short term, high concentration guru pupil sort of relationship that developed and was one of the most impactful experiences of my career. And, you know, of course, there's no notation. I mean, you're learning everything by rote and through just sure. the physical act of doing it. And it just really drove home the, the just fundamental human process, this humanity of the music making process that sure. I've always tried to carry into my sort of very classical and and sort of systematic music making, you know, opportunities. So yeah, it's funny how education can take away that that, uh, or I mean, it has the capacity to take away the the visceral joy of making music. Yeah. That has nothing to do with notation or theory, really. It's just about the act yeah. of, especially in percussion, the act of moving your body. You know, when yeah. I was younger, um, I I had a house with a, a friend of mine, and we built a, a soundproof room in the garage. Well, we turned the whole garage into a studio and. Uh, there was a, a band, um, what was it, a Suicidal Tendencies. I don't know if you've ever heard of, there's a, it's a local band. Definitely. And they used to, they used to keep their uh, drums in our garage and I used to go out there and bang, bang on them uh, all night long. And um, 
I think that's probably what prompted me to get my son a drum set really so that I could have a drum set, you know, and I, so I, t I turn on people like, uh, well, what's his name? Vinny Kalayuta and try to try to get seven days under my belt and that kind of stuff. Just these, yeah. these polyrhythms and stuff. It's just, it's just very, very difficult. I really admire, um, percussionists and, you know, I've always liked Omar Hakim and, um, uh, Phil Collins, you know, I mean, just some of the great, yeah. uh, drummers in, in the past. Um, Tell me about your work now. What is it? What has percussion led you into? Give me a little, give me your CV here of the things that you've done as a percussionist. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I preface it with, I, you know, I've been so fortunate, um, you know, in many ways, LA and the industry at large has been very kind in, in the opportunities that it's afforded. And so, you know, in the same way that, you know, these very diverse pathways of music, um, you know, shaped my just fundamental grasp of the art form. Uh, my career has led me to be able to participate in a lot of those same paths. And so um, every now and then when I'm updating my resume or my CV, like I kind of chuckle because, you know, you, you know, when I look at some of the artists I've worked with, it's just like, yeah, what, how, what is the least common denominator there? You know, like how did all of these things intersect? Right. And, you know, from artists like Dizu, who, you know, just said, sure, I'll come to LA and, you know, bounce, leave Cape Town for a couple of weeks. And, well, you've got a couple of kids you want to play with us. Okay, sure. Could be fun. You know, you know, you know, those kind of projects. And then, you know, working with, you know, composers like, you know, Danny Elfman, who have done a, a series of projects with now going back to 2013, who um, I, I shared the story with him only recently that, um, uh, the first CD my dad ever bought me, this is right when we transitioned to CDs from cassettes. Mm -hmm. uh, the first CD my dad bought me was actually the, the original Men in Black soundtrack, uh, which came out when I was a kid. And so fast forward to a couple of years ago, um, I had the pleasure of recording on Men in Black International. And, you know, it's a lot of the same players who played the original, you know, the first film. And, and so for me, having these kind of, you know, full circle feelings sometimes in the studio, getting to work with some of the same artists who, you know, like so many of us inspired us to do the work, right? Sure. Um, it's been such a joy, you know, and so working with composers like him, um, was fortunate to do a project with Stevie Wonder a couple of years back. I mean, it's it's been just sort of um, this really great and gratifying time of getting to work with a lot of my musical heroes. Sure. Uh, what was, what was, what would you say your big break was? When did that happen? You know, I, I don't know that there was any one Thing. I mean, my first project with Danny Elfman uh, definitely came at a point where um, I think a number of past projects and sort of the impacts of those projects had all kind of intersected. Um, because, you know, I think like so many artists who, you know, may perform, record, teach, and, you know, kind of weave together their careers in the ways mm -hmm. we do, um, you know, there were recording opportunities that led to me getting hired for live shows, live shows that led to teaching opportunities, teaching opportunities that led to, you know, other, other things. And so um, I think the first film with Danny, um, which was back in 2013 was a, was a big one in terms of film recording. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's such a sort of intricately woven, you know, process that I, I, I don't know that there was ever any one thing. Um, I think it was just this momentum that was developed through a series of projects that all happened sort of within a year and a two year period that led to different outcomes. Sure, sure. I, I've always felt like uh, the, the gig that you're in is all about getting the next gig, right? It's just being as excellent and yeah. as professional as you can be in the moment. 
to secure whatever comes next. It's so, um, you know, there's no job security in what we have. Um, I don't know how you feel, but I've been I've been a professional singer for 20, 25 years now. And every year I think, how am I going to how am I going to make this? How am I going to do this? And of course, every year is better than the last. And it's it's so strange to live in a in a career that doesn't have a kind of a laid out path for yeah. us. Um, yeah. yeah. I tell my stu students even often that the idea of making it is 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 a loaded concept and it can often be very self-destructive, right? Um, in, in, in multiple ways for freelancers and for full-time employees. You know, I think the idea that there is some gig that allows you to then just sort of rest upon, um, especially as a creative, I think most of us kind of inherently know that that's, okay, maybe financially there are some jobs that will afford you more security, but in terms of what will allow you to maintain a sense of both self-gratification and exploration and continue your growth as an autonomous human, mm -hmm, <laughs> like that mm -hmm. that requires sort of constant self-reflection and reinvention even. Right. And so, you know, in the best of all scenarios is a job that gives you safety and is gratifying and, you know, affords you opportunities to experiment. But it's like we have this Venn diagram we can like pick <laughs> yeah. two, you know? And so, um, so I think one of the big challenges is like figuring out that combination of the gas and the brakes and also just like knowing how to take care of yourself you know in in non-artistic ways too just like how do you physically care for yourself how do you just grow as a person who has read a book or 10 you know like how right. do you just not fully define your existence based on your creative process and your output you know and right so, right and yeah. i think that's the advantage that i mean the other side of the coin oops i just jostled my mic the other side of the coin is that we musicians ha are generally more well-rounded because of that, just out of necessity, having to piece together um, a career or pay paying the rent when you're just starting out and those types of things. Um, sorry, my kids are being so noisy. See, you live in just <laughs> a nice, quiet place over there. Um, and anyway, that leads me to my next question. I know that you, outside of being a percussionist, and a recording artist, you're also um, in arts advocacy. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got involved with arts advocacy and what it in, entails. Yeah, you know, the, the short story in terms of how I got involved is, uh, it, was, it was kind of a fluke, to be honest. It started as uh, a friend who ended up, um, be, of, because of no fault of her own, uh, ended up in need of a new visa because of a, a, a sort of freak incident that took place. Uh, she ended up having to leave the country and uh, I basically made a promise at the time that I had no capacity to keep whatsoever. I was about <laughs> 19 and knew nothing. Always say I knew, yes, right? I, yeah, exactly. I knew, I Can knew you do less, that? Yes, I know yes, how to do that. <laughs> exactly. I knew a little less than nothing about the American immigration process. Uh, you know, I just said, look, we'll find a way to get you back no idea of what how that was going to work um but that that winter i had gone to study abroad i was in london taking some lessons and and basically during the day i would do all my practicing and sort of musical work and at night i would go to the starbucks up the street and just like use their wi-fi and try to scout you know kind of scour information i'm like how to get an artist visa you know and and you know as i've told you know, pretty much anyone I've talked to about this. Fortunately, I was just a little too ignorant to be as scared as I should have been. Right. You know, it, it actually really played in my favor to just know nothing at this sure. point. Sure. Um, and so I just, you know, my 19 year old logic was like, well, you know, I can't find any info on the internet. So you know what? 
I'm just going to go to DC, you know, I'll go back home a little early and I'll just see if I can just talk to people, you know? So I just sort of emailed some people at the National Endowment for the Arts and the President's Committee of the Arts and Humanities and Immigration Services. And we're just like, can I come by at lunch today and just pick your brain? And in hindsight, I can only imagine how absurd this looked that this like kid, you know, at the time was just like, hey, so I'm trying to help a friend get an artist visa. Do you know anything about this, you know? And, and I remember some of the reactions kind of being like, wait, why are you here? Yeah. Like, who are wait, you? Huh? Yeah. There's, <laughs> so there's some pianist who wants to come back to community college, but can't. And so you're here. Like, you know, there's some middle ground. You're like, there's other people you could have called, kid, you know? Sure, sure. And, but ultimately, what this, what, you know, long story short of this was, what I learned in this process was there was very, you know, people, the, the government representatives I spoke with um, felt very little need and saw very little sort of reason to try to help a foreign artist reclaim their status or their citizenship here because there was so much ignorance surrounding what an artist's impact was economically, socially, culturally, mm -hmm. you know, the country. And so I, I made, I made a promise to my Myself that I also lacked the capacity to keep, which was I said to myself, you know what, I'm not going to go to bed tonight until <laughs> I can, you know, tell each and every one of these people exactly the ways artists impact the economy, how they impact all the other issues that, you know, this is two weeks before Obama's first inauguration. And so I, like, right. I went to the White House website and I like copied and pasted the issues tab into a <laughs> Word doc and was like, I'm going to tell them how they affect the military and healthcare and education. <laughs> <laughs> no idea what I was doing. And I started in about 10 minutes into it. It was like, oh, no, you're going to have to sleep. This is a long term project. Yeah, this is not going to be resolved tonight. Um, but what started is this process to try to help a friend get a visa um, turned into this journey where I was learning all of the sort of problems and loopholes and just issues within the federal arts infrastructure, the ways that, you know, Organizations like the National Endowment for the Arts, despite, you know, the objective good they were doing, you know, there, there were these massive disconnects in terms of the type of policies being enacted, the resources being made available, even the oversight to ensure sort of ethical um, or an equitable you know, distribution of those funds. And so that just kind of set me off to say, look, you know, there's this bigger issue that I don't feel like is really being addressed in a functional manner. Um, there are some hard soul searching conversations that we need to talk about in terms of how the country even utilizes the arts to address its problems. You know, issues of arts organizations that have been really dependent on kind of hollow narratives to achieve their goals rather than designing programs that achieve very strategic, very, you know, tactical ends. And that's how it all started, which is like, well, maybe it's time somebody figure this out. And then we codify this and we create a you know, a system to better prepare the next generation of arts leaders to think in this much more highly specified manner. And so that was how it started. Um, it was not how it began, you know? Right. <laughs> um, sorry, that's, that's where it went. It wasn't, it definitely wasn't how it began. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah. the rest has been just a continuation of that journey. Now, I can imagine the last four years has been kind of a desolate landscape as far as that work is, is concerned. <laughs> Do you have any aspirations to go back to DC and work with the current administration? Uh, yeah, you know, first of all, I um, I, I never really stopped. Um, mm -hmm. The situation in D.C. Um, during the previous administration 
um, I, I knew kind of even before the, the 2016 election, you know, and I, I think I told a colleague the, these exact words, you know, whether it was Hillary Trump or the Easter Bunny, there's work that needed to be done. And right. um, there were a lot of great things that happened as far as cultural policy during the Obama administration, but there were also a lot of great things that didn't happen. And a lot of great things that happened, but not as a result of the Obama administration. And so I knew there were certain aspects of this work that we really couldn't rest on our laurels. I mean, especially mm -hmm. on the equity front. Um, but, you know, for example, my there, there's been one basic question that's driven my policy work, which is how do we implement artists and arts organizations and all of our cultural capital into a broader range of societal issues? And how do we achieve very hyper specific gains? on those fronts. So, and that means everything from, you know, domestic issues like advancing education policy to um, economic stimulus and getting more artists back to work and, and, and creating an economy that's more conducive to a more stable art sector. But it also means looking overseas and saying, how do we utilize the, the programs and the narratives and our substantive content to create cultural spaces that are less conducive to the recruiting of individuals into violent organizations like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram? How do we build greater walls against terrorism? How do we build greater avenues for international development and refugee aid? You know, and there are very specific ways to do that, whether that's through expanding the availability of music to be licensed that's, you know, being recorded by artists currently living in refugee camps to, you know, again, you know, so on and so on and so on. And so, um, so for me, the idea that the Trump administration represented sort of the death of that process was never really, um, never really a concern of mine, because frankly, there was so far to go, even at the end of the Obama era, that even if, you know, Hillary had won the election, um, you know, there would have been so very far to go still. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so for me, I just turned my focus a, a bit away from the White House because it was very clear what their stance was on a policy perspective and used the last four years to say, all right, let me look with work more with organizations on the ground. I'm going to work with state legislators. I'm going to build up, you know, relationships with uh, foreign actors, being the UN, being other NGOs operating abroad and saying, look, when it comes time to have a greater sort of cultural ally in the White House, we'll be ready with this more robust infrastructure. But it, it definitely wasn't an off season. You know, the, sure. the wheels were turning uh, pretty, I would actually argue they were turning even faster during the last four years uh, than sure. they were prior. I, I feel like there's also a kind of a macro problem going on in our culture and perhaps across lots of the lots of the world and that is that that the general population doesn't seem to understand the importance of the arts at all in general just uh the importance of appreciating art and creating art and how it impacts our humanity and our understanding of the world and our place in it um i feel like somebody needs to come along and spend a billion dollars just making commercials telling people that art is good um I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't really, don't really know how to address that. I think that was one of the main reasons that I wanted to help start Orchestra Los Angeles was to bring art and beauty to uh, people in such a way that it's easily accessible and, and understood by an audience that doesn't normally go to the Dorothy Chandler, um, you know, just to make it something that's part of being a human being rather than something you put your fur coat on to go see. Um, no. Anyway, that's a little bit of a non sequitur. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you, you were talking about um, more equitable circumstances for artists, especially during challenging times, especially, you know, 
obviously COVID in the last year. How have you managed personally to get through this last uh, year uh, professionally? Well, you know, like so many, uh, you know, you, you there was a lot of diversifying the portfolio, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of wires and cables that are in all of our homes that we probably didn't have this time 12 months ago. Right. Um, you know, everybody, it's just like, if you didn't have a home office, you do now probably, yep. you know. Um, <laughs> and a home studio if you're a musician, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, a, a colleague literally sent me a picture, uh, it was this joke picture, but anybody who knew who knows what's going on knows it was little truth and everything was this picture of just like an actual mic set up over his toilet because he's like you just gotta be ready to go at any point these days so he's got right. this little bathroom podcasting station you know and uh, get that so wet we, sound yeah exactly you know you gotta be you gotta be ready with all the foley you know yep, whatever, yep. You need and uh you know couldn't afford the fx rig so you just gotta put it you know where we need. So, the shower curtains <laughs> a green screen yeah, exactly you know so you know there's been a lot of innovation you know sure uh, sure. uh, but, you know, look, I, for me, I, I finished my bachelor's fall of 2008 and, you know, entering grad school as the Great Recession was just unfolding, sure. um, taught me, I mean, like so many of us, you know, that right off the bat, we just shattered the illusion of any world where the industry could be recession proof, right? And, you know, so first things first, there's the, the the closure of programs. And and actually, slight aside, when you mention Opera Pacific, my teacher in undergrad used to be your principal percussionist, Opera Pacific, Eric Forrester. Uh, oh. So he was my teacher at the time. <laughs> so, oh my God. Uh, so yeah, I have a lot of memories of Opera Pacific, actually. Uh, I used to go to some of their rehearsals when I was in school. So maybe, maybe I saw you up there, actually. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, but, uh, you know, so for me, I, I knew up front that... I needed to have a plan. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was not ready to be taking major auditions at the time. And there were only a few orchestras that were even holding them, you know, mm-hmm. for the next two years. Um, so auditioning for orchestras wasn't really a thing. Uh, most of the regional orchestras that maybe would have hired timpani plus three percussionists were just doing Mozart for a bit. So just timpani. Um, so I originally sort of learned the sort of propensity for the industry to shrink drastically and because of my instrument there were a lot of strings only concerts a lot of just wooden quintets so you know as a percussionist there was a lot of work that just vanished and you had Mm -hmm. these a-list studio players taking church jobs because that was the only way they could work you know and and the other thing it taught me very quickly was that you know it seemed like everyone retreated back to mozart and beethoven Right. So it spoke very clearly about what, you know, what organizations viewed as their like default setting. Yeah. You know? bread so, and sure. Yeah. So, you know, what, you know, when you look at what's the skeletal, you know, what is the skeletal version of your business model? It's the same like five composers, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it taught me very quickly, um, you know, what the industry again viewed as its core, its sort of core service. Um, so fast forwarding to, you know, the recession, like I, I had already spent, you know, the last, you know, 12 years, you know, carrying that in the back of my mind, because at the end right. of the day, you know, if there's anything I think we all kind of know is that whatever the circumstances we, you know, I'm sure most of us didn't think it'd be because of a pandemic, there was always going to be some form of a recession again, 
right? And so, so for me, I, I, one of my other motivations as my policy research began to transform into actual paid employment was, okay, like this is something that, again, figure out the, the gas and brick combination, um, which for me manifests in the way of really integrating my policy and performance work. So a lot of mm -hmm. the same organizations that I have partnered with to develop programs, I've also performed for or taught for. Mm -hmm. um, so that should a moment like this arrive, not all of the eggs are in one basket. That's right. You know, And you're and, making your own work. You're creating your own opportunity, which yeah. is something that uh, teachers don't teach you a lot in, in music school. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's there's a this is more of a, a physical lesson that I end up talking with my students about a lot. But I I came to appreciate the sort of mental and metaphorical aspects of it uh, during the pandemic was um, I always tell my students, you know, the, the physical arc of your career is, is one big contradiction. Right. So from the first day you pick up your instrument, you know, whatever that instrument is, in our case, you know, sticks or mallets or something, you know, you are constantly in the cycle of building strength and control, but trying to execute everything with a level of relaxation that you only had before you ever developed a muscle. And if you only focus on one, you will either hurt yourself <laughs> or you'll, you know, sort of exhaust yourself, but you'll never be able to ex execute things with the technical accuracy that you're perceiving. Your, your musical vocabulary will be very limited. Sure. And so it's not just that the push and pull is part of the process. It's that push and pull is literally the process. Like you have to do both. And during this last year, I thought about that a lot. And I, I realized how that was also very much true for just the industrial aspects of this sure. too, right? You know, you develop and develop and develop and develop and work and work and work so that you can also not have to do that all the time, you know, or as uh, one author who I, I really enjoy, uh, John Lewis Gaddis, is this amazing book called On Grand Strategy that I recommend to everybody. Um, transform the way I, I, I approach strategic thinking. Uh, I talked about the Spartans, right? And how the whole concept behind this army was that, you know, you train and train and train and train and train so that you never have to go to war. <laughs> you, know? right. you do all the work so that, you know, you've established yourself as this thing that could if you needed to so that people find other ways. You know, you just so build yourself up so you don't have to do the thing you've been training to do. And so for me, it was, you know, build yourself up so you don't have to panic you know, build yourself up so you don't have to kind of lose it. Now, I also have the, you know, the advantage, and I, and I hate to use that word, but I think in, in just being sort of dispassionate, like, you know, I, I don't have kids, right? I don't have dependents, right? So for me, the process of just sort of declaring what I want to do or what I can do isn't necessarily being shaped by those obligations. So I recognize much of the world doesn't have that luxury, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so, you know, as I process that and how this pandemic has affected, you know, the world so drastically and dramatically. Um, a big part of this process for me has also been like, look, you know, how do you apply that freedom to being a better colleague, better friend, better ally, better resource for those who are struggling more, you know? And so, so it, it it's, it's been equal parts, um, this sort of journey where, you know, I feel lessons of 2008 have come to roost. <laughs> um, but also when I put it in context to the sort of, you know, relative freedom that um, I've been able to have to navigate those career choices, um, it's allowed me to sort of, I think, be more supportive than, sure. than I might have, you know, so sure. it's, it, it all kind of comes back in, in, a, in a sort of, you know, myriad ways. Well, hopefully we're working our way out of this predicament. What do you have coming up? Do you have anything exciting coming up as far as uh, percussion goes? 
Um, there's a film that I worked on that I'm very excited about that is uh, premiering on March 5th on Amazon Prime, which is uh, Coming to America, too. Actually, it's a sequel to Coming to America. Congratulations. Uh, That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Jermaine Stagel wrote this amazing score. Uh, it's an amazing cast of artists and obviously the the, the actors and musicians. Um, I like the trailer had me like in shambles. I mean, it's just I think it's going to be hilarious. Uh, I think it's gonna be a movie we we need, that's, <laughs> and, that's you know, not too soon at all. Uh, and did, so, for did me, you record it during the pandemic? We did. Yeah. Did you go to location? Did you do it from your home? How did you I, do it? I didn't. So I recorded remotely. A number of the musicians did remotely. Um, mm-hmm. I, be, I I don't want to misspeak. I think some of the strings um, had a section, a, a sectional recording. Um, but yeah, a number of us just home studio, sending the tracks, and you know. Wow. Got it, got it done. Uh, so, you amazing. know, talk about learning experiences. Um, you know, the remote recording, you know, it's just, as a percussionist, that's one of the other things that you kind of have to work through. It's like, okay, where where's the gear? Where can I record? You know, for some projects I can record here at home. Um, there's also a studio that I rent that I'll go to for like larger projects because for the most part, everything's great. But there is every day, right around 5 to 5.30, there's this guy who has desperately needed a new catalytic converter for about six months, <laughs> who like goes down, the, goes down my street. And every day, somewhere between five and 5.30, the same car alarm goes off. And that sure. person always parks right outside. So I've literally built a window into my like project recording schedules for that alarm, because I know he goes by every day. It's pretty routine. Um, so like I'll schedule my dinner breaks between five and like 5.45, just to leave, you know, so, so what I don't want to necessarily leave a window for car alarms, you know, you, you, you got to get out and do things, but, but so far it's, it's worked out. And again, um, I've been very fortunate in terms of, you know, one um, work that has still come my way, but also, um, you know, having a space to create and to be able to record and to be able to still produce, you know, products at the level of, you know, submissions for film and TV work. So uh, that's its own other sort of journey yeah, on top and, of it and, all. That's been kind of the silver lining, I think, in this whole thing for for lots of different professional sectors, not just musicians. But I think there's a paradigm shift coming as far as going to I think going to the office every day, five days a week is perhaps a thing of the past for a a lot of people, uh, musicians included. Um, You know, we've all learned how to I I submitted and my wife submitted um, vocal tracks for the LA Opera Gala a few months ago, um, something that we obviously normally do live. and I think a lot of people have accumulated the, the right amount of gear to turn in um, really high quality recordings. And I love it. You know, you can just, you know, you have to put on pants and you can do something great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, wait, do you have pants on? I, I, well, I, I got the, we got the memo this. about the jackets. Yeah, but exactly. The, the pants yeah. Were, yeah, I just left that up to you. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Sydney, yeah. it's been great. Thank you so much for being on the show. I just, I think you're so interesting and, and uh, such a light in our local musical landscape um, and really somebody to look up to. And I, I appreciate you being here and I appreciate being a colleague of yours. And, uh, and I, I call, call you a friend and I'm very proud of that. So thanks for yeah, being likewise. on the show. Thank you, Omar. Thank you for having me. Thank you for hosting this. And uh, yeah, you know, there, there's, there's no way to be too connected right now. And That's so I right. think every, every pathway to just keep, keep seeing each other you know and keep hearing one another and just keep remembering we're out there and we're doing it and uh you know it's 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 so important and that's um, right you know um i i can't 
to tell you how much I appreciate it. And yeah, I just I well, look forward to doing it in person. But in the meantime, this is I know sooner than later, I hope. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right, brother. I'll talk to you later. Hey, man, Thanks again. Well. All, right, All right. You bye too. Bye. bye. That was Sydney Hobson, everybody. Thanks so much, Sydney, for being a genius. You're a terrific guest. Always glad to talk with you, my friend. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate it so very much. Thanks for listening. Be kind. Do good work. And until next time. Get on to my show.